the Discovery Flight, and Flight Seeing, a wonderful way to pique the interest of a prospective pilot or even just to see the world from the perspective of the birds. What could be more pleasant? Not much, unless the airplane develops an engine problem that leaves the pilot and passengers too far from an airport to land. But then crisis number two arises, a total electrical failure, with the ocean on the right, a crowded highway to the left, and clouds below. That's the scenario on this episode of iLaft. I learned about flying from that. Hi, I'm Rob Ryder, and welcome to episode 54 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, sponsored by Avemco Insurance. On today's episode, flight instructor Matt Keane describes how a Saturday afternoon pleasure flight with two passengers went very wrong near Monterey, California. The Cessna 172 they were flying had a standard six-pack. What started as a loss of RPM led to the engine quitting and crippling his attitude and heading indicators, and a marine layer obscuring his most promising landing spot. He'll share how he got through the clouds and back on the ground, right after this word from Avemco. The folks at Avemco Insurance are passionate about pilot safety. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program, publish dozens of articles on safety techniques and human factors by noted CFIs, and even support I learned about flying from that. Visit avemco.com slash flying or talk to them at 800-338-8705. Tell them you're an I learned about flying from that listener and they'll even save you an additional 5% off your premium. Now, I learned about flying from that. My guest on I Laughed today is a young man who had a harrowing experience with a couple of people who had not spent a lot of time in the air, but you as a flight instructor, Matt Keene, had to uh, calm the nerves of your people on a discovery flight. Welcome to iLaft. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. This only happened last, what, last August of uh, 2022. This is still fresh in your mind, uh, and we will get to the whole story about that because it is pretty amazing how you handled it and some of the other little serendipitous things that uh, that happened as well with respect to uh, equipment you had and and didn't have when you had the electrical failure. But we'll get to that. Tell me, Matt, you're a young guy. Uh, may I ask your age? Or you, you look like you're early 20s. Uh, that's correct. I just turned 23 in October. Wow, and you're a CFI. That's correct. I'd love to hear the story of your aviation journey and becoming a CFI and what your aspirations are. When you were a kid, did you build models and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was into it from the very beginning. You know, I can't remember a time where I didn't want to be an aviator when I grew up. Oh. I had two grandmas that were flight attendants, for, one for uh, Pan American, the other one for United. They were big inspirations. Um, and, uh, just growing up, I always knew that I wanted to get into the profession. And so when I finally got of age, um, I started initially taking lessons at a part 61 school. It's actually the same one I work for now. Um, but then I found that, uh, 
part 141 was going to be more my speed, you know, a little bit more structure. And so I ended up going to college uh, for flight school, uh, University of North Dakota in, uh, in Grand Forks. Oh, what a great school that is. Congratulations. You, you chose a great place to study and get your ratings. Yeah, I'm super happy with my decision on that front. Um, so I ended up getting my private pilot's license at the Grand Forks campus. Um, and then I actually transferred. They have a satellite campus in Phoenix, Arizona. And I transferred to that one. And that's where I did my instrument commercial multi-engine and CFI. Matt, now that you are an instructor and working at that same school and you're training, you're instructing, I guess, in Cessnas, um, what are your aspirations? You say 141, or are you wanting to go 121 and become an airline pilot or 135, or what are you thinking about? Yeah, you know, I always saw myself going the airline pilot route. Um, growing up, I thought those were the, you know, the coolest guys ever, the, <laughs> the pilots walking onto the planes of the giant 747s and 777s. That was always where I envisioned myself. And I still have aspirations to one day get there. Um, but before I became an instructor, I actually took a job at a local FBO, and I got to see more of the uh, corporate uh, 135 part uh, side of aviation and you know seeing some of those uh, those fancy um, bombardiers and gulf streams has really <laughs> kind of opened my mind up a little bit there there are some beautiful airplanes out there that uh, uh, that will require a lot of your time but there is something something magical about uh, being in the cockpit of a gulf stream or a challenger or even uh, well whatever it might be even a cirrus vision jet Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking. So, you know, as of this point, um, I'd still love to make it to the airlines one day. Um, I think that's probably still my number one career aspiration. But I mean, I'm willing to listen to whatever offers come my way. Let the market decide, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, let's go back to August now, Matt, because that day you were not with a student. You were with a couple of a guy and his girlfriend who wanted to go for a discovery flight. Tell us what happened that day out of Monterey, California. Is it KMRY? Is that the uh, identifier? Yeah, that's the identifier for Monterey. Um, so uh, this was scheduled to just be a normal run-of-the-mill discovery flight, um, one that I've done at this point um, probably close to 50 of. Um, and this particular flight was actually originating out of, uh, the Salinas airport, which is not too far away from Monterey. I know about. that airport. Well, I, and yeah. I will just say right now, I've announced that show for many, many years and it's a great airport and they've got so much ag activity there too. That's another big thing going on over there. Yeah. Big ag agricultural area. Um, and my company keeps an airplane there. Um, it's more of a uh, satellite location, but we do keep an airplane there and we do offer um, flights out of the Salinas location. And so um, that's where this particular flight uh, originated from was Salinas. And um, funnily enough, though, we actually had to make a stop in Monterey before um, doing the proper discovery flight because one of the headsets was missing. So oh. we had to go to the yeah we had to go to the main office and pick up a spare headset uh, for one of the passengers. 
I gotcha. Now, the, the Monterey Airport uh, is really susceptible to the marine layers. Salinas, a little less so. But so you got down there and you got everybody on a headset and everybody's comfortable. I'm sure they were excited. How long a flight was this going to be? So this was scheduled to just be about an hour flight. Wow. Um, yeah, the, the customer has the option of either booking a one hour or 1.5 hour. Now, um, I was going, I was planning on having it go just a little bit of over an hour just to offset the inconvenience of having to, you know, go to the other location to pick up a spare headset. Um, so it was probably going to be all said and done, maybe about an hour, 10, hour, 15 minutes. That sounds like a wonderful way to do it. And when you're out there, it's kind of the salad bowl of California. Uh, it's really beautiful country out there. Were you planning on doing a low-level flight or just go up to 5,500? Or tell me about what the profile was going to be. Yeah, so uh, I was planning on about 3,500 feet. Um, anywhere from 3,500 to 4,500 is kind of right in the sweet spot um, for cruising around the Monterey Bay area. Um it gives you a good uh, view of the surrounding areas from the Salinas Valley um, all the way up the coast to Santa Cruz and um, down Monterey and then past it, Monterey even into Carmel and Big Sur. Um, gives you kind of a good view of everything while still um, keeping close enough to the ground. It is gorgeous country up there. Well, say you've taken to tell me you've taken off now with everybody in a proper headset. You're off the ground. And how long after you took off from Monterey, did things go awry? And tell us what happened. Yeah, so it was a considerable amount of time before uh, we noticed anything uh, going wrong. Um, we you know, did our normal cruise. Um, the profile was set up so that we would take off from Monterey and follow the coastline to Santa Cruz to do our maneuvers. But on this particular day, um, like you mentioned earlier, there was a low-lying marine layer that I had to contend with, but this one was a little particular in that it was only covering up to about half a mile or so um, on the coast. So anything- When you I, say half a mile on the coast, you mean extending inland from the coast only a half a mile? Is that what you that's mean? That's correct. Okay. Yep, that's correct. Um, so yeah, anything uh, to the east of that was clear in a million. Um, absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and and your passengers are probably ooing and eyeing and taking videos and loving what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. They're from San Francisco. So they were loving being able to see the area. Um, lots of pictures and videos. Um, the front seat passenger actually brought a GoPro with him and he was taking a lot of videos with that. Wow. And well, <laughs> we'll check back later to see if he's decided to allow you to look at those because it, uh, it was probably dramatic when things started to go bad. Well, tell me, when things started to go bad, what happened, where were you, and how did you respond? When things started to go bad, we were already over Santa Cruz, and we'd already done kind of the bulk of um, what we do on these discovery flights. Um, you know, I was showing um, the passengers, you know, just basic flight maneuvers, things like climbs, turns, descends, um, of that nature. And I had decided that it was about time to turn around and start heading back for Salinas. And we were maybe about a minute after having turned around for Salinas, I decided, well, you know, maybe if, to get a little bit better um, view of the area, I'll climb up to about 5,500 uh, from 3,500. So I started this initial climb, and that's kind of where I noticed the first symptom of what was to come. And what was that? 
And that was a slight reduction in RPM is what I first noticed. And you had now, gone full throttle for the climb, I assume. Yes, that's standard procedure in our Cessna. We go full throttle for the climb. Um, and, you know, having done this a lot, um, your ear gets pretty used to uh, the tune of the RPM and what you should be hearing for certain RPMs in certain situations. And um, on this particular uh, instance, it was uh, so much out of the norm that it caught my attention. How big a drop was it? I ended up looking at the uh, the tack, and usually on these climbs, you can expect anywhere from about 2,350 RPM to almost 2,400. And this thing was sitting close, maybe just above 2,200 RPM. So it wasn't major, but enough to get your attention. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, at this point, I had no idea that, you know, um, things were so close to going so wrong. Did you, when you saw that, Matt, start looking at other instruments like your oil pressure and oil temperature and any other instruments to, to see if you could decipher what the problem was with that loss of RPM? I did start looking at some other instruments. Oil pressure wasn't the first one, and you know, maybe this is uh, to my detriment and my mistake, but um, one of the f other ones I looked at right away was um, the airspeed. You know, we were a little bit on the heavier side, so the first thing that came to mind was, you know, well, maybe I'm trying to climb this thing at too high of a rate, uh -huh. um, you know, since we are heavier. So my first thought was to lower the pitch of the nose and see if um, the RPMs would return and uh, maybe, you know, setting more of a cruise climb would uh, fix the problem. But it didn't. It didn't. Um, as soon as I did that, I, you know, the RPM still stayed on the lower side and um, further uh, caught my attention. And so I decided to um, completely level off the airplane. That's where things really started to go wrong. Because when I leveled off, not only did the RPMs not uh, climb to a normal setting, right? a leveled off Cessna, if you have full power, should easily be able to make close to 2,500 RPM, something around there. Um, this thing started dropping from 22. Oh, boy. Did your passengers realize that at that point? No, actually, they didn't. Um, I, if I recall correctly, the backseat passenger was in the middle of telling a story. I think. And that was the lady? That was yeah, the girlfriend? Yeah, that was the lady. Yep. Okay. Yeah, she was in the middle of telling a story, um, all while I was, you know, listening to the RPMs. And when I heard them, you know, progressively wind down, I had to tell her to hold on, right? Pause your story for a second. And that's where everything just got quiet. Um, the engine seized, the props got fixed in a single position, and it, things got really quiet. Now, you say it seized up. It wouldn't windmill at all. It just stopped absolutely dead? That's correct. Yeah, it did not windmill at all. It was in a fixed position, just Whoa. not budging. It must have made a horrific noise, which probably alarmed your passengers a great deal. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I don't really recall the noise so much as just the sight of a stopped prop while we're still in the air was really what caught me off guard. What did they say at that point? Yeah, well, I remember the backseat passenger, she, she asked, like, uh, are we going to be okay? And I gave the most genuine answer possible. I did not care about trying to sound professional at all. And I said, I don't know. Whoa. Um, yeah, because I still needed time to process what had just happened and figure out uh, a game plan for what was to come. 
When you finally got an idea of what was going on, I'm assuming you aviate, navigate, communicate, you got best glide speed. What was your best glide speed in the in the 172 for that one? In the 172, um, best glide speed is 65 knots. So you trimmed for 65. Did you put any flaps in? Um, no, no flaps in. So um, flaps kind of uh, wasn't... Um, thinking about so much at that time. Um, it wouldn't have become a consideration for me until it was uh, time for the landing. Um, and the only reason for that is because, you know, as we're taught um, in flight school, um, for a, when you knew something like a power off landing, you know, once you put your flaps in, you can't take them out. So, you know, it's always, um, my practice was to um, not use the flaps until they were necessary. What kind of descent rate did you experience? 500 feet a minute, somewhere around there. The props stopped when we were at about 3,800 feet. Uh, so that's where we started the descent from. Did you then call a mayday? And where were you at that point? Because you told me earlier that there was a marine layer that extended inland about a half a mile. Did you have ground contact at that point? We were still over... Um, about east side of Santa Cruz. And the marine layer was situated in such that, um, you know, for this flight, I knew that I always wanted to keep side of the ground below me and to the east of me um, at all times. So I could see the ground below me. I just could not see um, anything west of the marine layer. So, you know, I had ground, we were now facing southbound. So everything to the left of me, I could see everything directly beneath me, I could see. I just couldn't really see much to the right. Um, that's how the marine layer was blocking it. First thing I did was I ran through my memory items, right? Mixture, primer, fuel selector, all those good things um, to try to you know, figure out if um, it was just a major error that I made, you know, um, try to rule out anything that I could have done that uh, would cause a situation like this. But nothing helped. Um, none, none of the memory items helped. And so that's why I went from Aviate and I um, started saying, okay, well, you know, if this engine isn't coming back on, um, I got to figure out, you know, the next uh, move here. You know, where are we going to put this thing down? And so in our current position, I knew that the Watsonville Airport was going to be the closest one to us. I didn't know exactly how far away it was, but I had already had uh, doubts that it would be close enough for us to glide to. And so I immediately um, I called NorCal Approaches, which was who I was talking to for this flight. And I uh, declared my emergency, um, and I told them I need vectors to the nearest airport. Uh, and they came back and said, okay, Watsonville Airport is 12 o'clock, uh, one zero miles. Ooh, and immediately, from 3,800 feet? Yeah. Not... Well, th at this point, we were closer probably to 34, 3,300 feet. Oh, boy. Yeah. So immediately I knew, okay, one zero miles, I'm not making that. We got to figure out something else. And so this is where I made the decision and I kind of turned my mindset towards thinking, okay, this is probably going to be an off airport landing, which is a bit of a scary prospect because now you really have to be careful about choosing a spot where you know, you're, you're going to survive uh, the landing. And you say you are going to survive. Were you also thinking about the survival of your passengers? Were you concerned for them as well? Or were you just saying, focusing on Here's what I have to do to get this airplane down. We'll worry about the people later. Well, um, you know, acting in a PIC role, um, I was 
um, thinking about the, the survival of my passengers as well. And I kind of had a thought, well, um, where if I was going to pick a spot where I think I would most survive, it's fairly good chance that they would survive as well. Um, you know, the Cessna is a small enough airplane where, you know, there, there aren't large sections of the fuselage that are going to break off and, you know, one part of it wouldn't, uh, with passengers wouldn't survive versus the other part. But, um, I, I was trying to keep in mind, um, the, the safety of my passengers as well. And as well as the, the people on the ground, you know, that this is kind of where the other consideration comes in is when I was looking for a spot to put this airplane down, I knew I didn't want to land in a crowded area. Because um, the last thing you want to do is land an airplane and, uh, you know, if you survive, but then a bunch of you know innocent people on the ground get hurt in the process, um, that'd be very unfortunate. It all kind of was going into my consideration on choosing a good spot to put this thing down in. Let me ask you quickly, was this yeah. a G1000 equipped 172 or was it a steam gauge airplane? So this was a steam gauge 172. It had the full steam gauge system, vacuum system. Um, the only glass in it, so to speak, was the Garmin GPS. All right. What happened after that? Because you told me that that was not the only failure that you experienced during that emergency. What happened? As soon as I um, figured out where I wanted to land, all right, you know, I actually kind of used the process of elimination. To my left, I had taller hills um, with a bunch of trees. And, you know, I thought, okay, that doesn't really look like a good spot. And I look below me and I see uh, uh, Highway 1. The highways always kind of seem to, um, especially you know, for my students too, they always kind of seem like good spots to put them down. But on this particular day, you know, this is a Saturday in August, a uh, hot summer day. Highway 1 was completely crowded. It was basically a parking lot of people. And in this particular stretch of highway as well, there was a lot of overpasses. Um, both oh. of those, yeah, both of those things I did not like seeing. And they both um, deterred me from considering the highway as a viable option. Then what was your next choice? My next choice, um, uh, and actually, I kind of, it took me a second to come to this next choice because. I was stuck between deciding, okay, you know, do I try to find a gap in the traffic maybe on the highway or do I try to, you know, I know there's a beach below that marine layer. I just can't see it. So it, you have to choose, you know, which of those problems you want to deal with, which is either, um, you know, maneuvering around people and trying to find a safe spot on the highway to put it down or going through the marine layer. Now, what made going through the marine layer an interesting option was during the process of trying to restart the engine, I probably cranked it. Well, not probably. I think I could say at this point, I definitely cranked it a little too much and uh, the battery died. So you've lost all electrical power. You can't talk to NorCal. Your Garmin GPS, did it have a backup battery in it? So was it still functioning or what happened? How would you figure out where you were? Yeah, so the Garmin GPS does not have a backup battery, or at oh. least the one that we had did not. Um, so essentially, I was flying a cold and dark airplane at that point. None of my instruments, you know, besides the airspeed, obviously, um, but the attitude indicator started rolling over and the GPS, um, it started flickering at first, but then it completely shut off. Um, and things got really quiet because after that, or, you know, before that, NorCal was constantly giving me updates on the Watsonville Airport 
um, you know, the weather conditions. But then after uh, the radio turned off, it just got eerily quiet. Just the sound of the wind going against the airplane was all I could hear. And your passengers, were they being deathly quiet? Were they or were they talking to you or trying to get your attention on something? So this is where you know I have to give a lot of uh, props to them was uh, they were being extremely helpful in that they were being completely quiet and they were letting me work the problem. Um, that's the best thing they could have done in that situation. And um, I made sure to thank them for it after we got on the ground because uh, I don't know how I would have fared if I had, um, you know, to deal with uh, passengers who were uh, emotional. You know, perhaps. Yeah, emotional. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you did have an ace in the hole. I did have an ace in the hole. We yeah, got to talk about that. Okay. You had ForeFlight, you had an iPad, and you had just purchased what? So I had just purchased a um, ForeFlight Sentry Plus ADS-B device. Um, and I'm sure most people are familiar with what an ADS-B device is. It provides um, you know, traffic information as well as um, weather information uh, you can display on ForeFlight on your iPad. And but, um, it has an AHARS. Yep. Yeah, yeah. This particular model, the Plus, had a backup AHARS, which is really um, what saved uh, the situation here. And so what I did was, um, you know, on ForeFlight, when you have this backup AHARS, you can hit a button and um, make ForeFlight split into um, a split screen with a moving map and a backup um, artificial horizon with uh, airspeed and altitude information. You pointed it toward the clouds. Yep. So I, I hit that button, got the split screen up on my ForeFlight, and I, you know, made the very tough decision. Okay, I'm going to go to the clouds and I'm going to try to get this thing onto the beach. When did you go into the clouds? At what altitude? So I went into the clouds at about 1,600 feet, um, somewhere right around there. And this uh, particular cloud layer, you know, we're still at about 500 feet a minute descent rate. And um, it felt like I was in the clouds forever. Um, but it was probably and, only a little over two minutes. Yeah, it, it only came out to about two minutes, um, <laughs> longest two minutes of my life. I but, bet. Um, yeah, so we got into the clouds and, um, you know, at this point, um, since I still, you know, I, at, at that particular point, I did not know that um, the cranking of the engine has what killed the battery. Obviously, you know, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, you have to learn from the consequences of your mistake after analyzing it. And um, I was still trying to crank over the engine. And because the reason why is because um, I could actually see the prop turning. And it, to me, I just got the feeling like it, it wanted to turn over and start. For some reason, uh, I thought it was just right on the cusp of being able to. And um, I actually caught a little bit of a break in that I actually did get it restarted into a low power state very briefly. Um, and, um, you know, the belt to the alternator started turning again, and it gave a little bit of charge to some of the electrical instruments in the airplane. And very briefly, the radio turned back on, the GPS turned back on, um, and I could hear NorCal, and I was just barely able to tell them, okay, we're going for the beach. It was up to me to figure out and try to decide, okay, when do I make this turn to line up with the beach? Because I knew I didn't want to put it in the water. Right? Worst case scenario, we'd have to make a water ditching, but I wanted to try for the beach first. That would be you know, much easier logistically, and we wouldn't have to deal with trying to egress the airplane in the water. Well, let me um, cut to the chase then. You yeah. did break out at what altitude, 
And you had talked earlier, Matt, about not wanting to hurt people on the ground had you tried to land on uh, Highway 1. What about people on the beach? When you broke out, did you see people on the beach or did you see an open landing spot? You know, even though this was a Saturday in August, since there was that marine lair, um, there weren't a whole lot of people on the beach. Um, Now, it wasn't completely empty, but it also wasn't completely crowded like it could have been if there wasn't that marine lair. You found Um, a spot, you put it down, you stopped the airplane, and I'm sure you probably sat there as after you came to a stop and thought, what have we just been through? What did your passengers say to you at that point? They were still continuing to be um, really quiet. Uh, they <laughs> just kind of looked at me and stared at me with a, you know, almost an emotionless face. But I could tell they were pretty visibly shaken from the incident. Let me um, ask, did you yeah. do an, I'm assuming it was a no flap landing if you didn't have any electricity. Yep. Yeah. So it wow. was a no-flap landing, and um, you know, uh, I kind of tried to uh, make it as close to a soft field landing as possible, right? Because beach is essentially a soft field. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, uh, you know, tried to keep the nose wheel off the ground as long as possible, um, and then once uh, all three tires were on the ground, I didn't use brakes at all. I let it coast to a stop on the sand, and which the sand did a really good job of slowing us down anyways. Um, About what kind of rollout landing distance did you have? I'd say maybe 600, 700 feet, somewhere wow. around there. Good news out of a bad situation. We'll take a break, Matt, and then we'll come back and talk about what you learned about flying from that. Since 1961, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker, empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Visit avemco.com flying or call them at 800-338-8705 for a quote and save an instant 5% for being an ILAFT listener. Save even more for most recurrent training a new rating, or participating in fast team wings. Just ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can qualify and how much you'll save. Now, back to ILAFT. We're back with Matt Keene, who, along with two passengers on their Discovery flight, made a successful off-airport landing near Watsonville, California, on the beach, and didn't hit anybody, hurt anybody, Matt, what did you learn about flying from that? Couple different things. I'd say, you know, maybe not going in any particular order. Um, the first one that comes to mind is uh, the importance of training. Um, the type of training you get um, when you're an initial private pilot student um, is really is really important. And it'll, I think, in my opinion, it makes or breaks the situation if you get put into an emergency situation like I did. That day really showed me how important the training was, uh, the training I received at University of North Dakota. And I'm super grateful that it uh, was as quality as it was to allow me to deal with a situation like that. Because I had to combine knowledge from at least three or four different uh, uh, you know, emergency situations to get myself through that, uh, through that incident. No flap landing, soft field landing, and and having extra equipment as a backup in case all the good stuff in the plane fails. 
Exactly. And that, that's another point too, is, um, you know, having a good source of, uh, uh, backups. And you had just ordered your ADSB receiver. And did you tell me that you paid for some expedited shipping? Yeah, that's correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, very interesting detail of story here is that, um, only a little, uh, more than a week prior to this incident is when that um, that horrific Watsonville crash happened. You know, between the 152 and the 340. Oh yes. Um, and I heard about that, and you know, since I live close by, that hit really close to home for me. Um, and once I found out the details of that situation, um, I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, there's really no point in me continuing to fly without an ADSB device. I want to be able to traffic see- in other words. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Without being able to see traffic, um, you know, it's it's going to make me a safer pilot. I need to get this. And it arrived when? So it arrived um, and because I paid for the expedited shipping, it arrived just two days prior to this incident. Wow. And without it, you would not have had any way to keep the shiny side up when you went into the clouds. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I wouldn't have had the backup AHARS, which wouldn't have allowed me to um, get my iPad into uh, the split screen with the moving map map. and the uh, artificial horizon. Incredible stuff. Well, Matt Keen, that's an awesome story. And congratulations on uh, handling the emergency in a fashion that no one was hurt. Did your passengers, have you stayed in contact with them at all, or have they run off and given up the idea of ever wanting to fly? Uh, very much the latter. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Um, once we got on the ground, I yeah, once we got on the ground, I heard him say, yeah, we're never stepping, stepping foot in a Cessna ever again. Well, we can't change their attitudes, but we can learn from what you learned. And Matt Keen, thank you so much for being on I Laughed. Thank you so much for having me. Even though Matt purchased his ADSB receiver primarily to provide traffic information, in this case though, the moving map and AHARs were critical in his being able to fly safely through the clouds and then land on the beach. And by the way, I asked Matt what happened to the engine and he said that an oil leak was the cause. I'm glad that he handled things in a way that ended well. Do you have an iLaft story you'd like to share? If you've had an incident in which you learned some valuable lessons, send me a synopsis and I'll take a look at it. Shoot me an email. You can reach me at rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts and I do hope you'll subscribe. You can also go to flyingmag.com and click on podcasts. We drop episodes every couple of weeks so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of iLaft, and Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. The iLaft theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Potorf. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.